Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I am like a kid at Christmas this week. We have the only five star of the year, Poe, taking place in France, and we'll be talking about that a bit more later. But first, our guest for this week is Mark Todd. He'll be telling the story of his double Olympic gold medalist charisma and why this tiny star was more famous than his rider. At the time when I was riding him, he was probably more famous than I was, but I sort of tagged along for the ride and and, uh, he will always be the one that um, sort of stands out. I'll also be joined by two of our news team to discuss dope testing and showing and the FBI tribunal process. And finally, we'll speak to vet Helen Van Toole about what to do if your horse's skin shows a bad reaction after hunting. So when you find your horse with his belly on fire the next morning with large skin bumps all under his abdomen, the question is what to do. So pop your feet in the stirrups and let's get going. My guest this week is quite simply a living legend in equestrianism, a double Olympic champion, winner of four badmintons and five burleys, king of the successful comeback and so much more. He is, of course, the New Zealand event rider turned racehorse trainer, Mark Todd. Hello, Mark. Uh, Hi, Pippa. Great to have you on the podcast today. Now, there are so many topics that we could delve into in in your long and brilliant career. But today we're going to focus on the two-time Olympic gold medalist Charisma, who is featured in our Horse Legends series in today's magazine. Can you start by telling us how did you first come to get the ride on him? Um, Well, those that have read my book will know the story, but I mean, it it is quite, it's quite funny. I I first came across Charisma as a, as a, I think he was a two-year-old when I was working on a farm and the then owners um, turned him when he was a colt out on the farm. And uh, I remember seeing him and thought, God, that's a cute little horse. Shame he'll never be big enough. Um, And then the next time I, I met him was... Um, I was training uh, my local area pony club for the pony club championships and he was representing another era, uh, area and um, uh, I think he could have, from memory, and my, it was an awful long time ago now, uh, the memory was he could have actually won the thing but I think she turned a circle somewhere or did something funny in the show jumping and um, lost it. And then... The next time was I'd just come back from, from England and I had a phone call and said, um, I was living back in New Zealand and do you want to have the ride on this horse, Charisma? Because he's, he's, he's not doing anything at the moment. So uh, He'd been doing dressage. Um, so I said, well, I'll, I'll drive down and have a look at him. And it was the middle of winter um, and I was living in Cambridge and drove the two hours down to Taupo, which is always cold in the winter anyway. Um, and I got out of the car and here was this little, fat, hairy, and I mean he did get very hairy in the winter, pony, and I very nearly got back in the car um, and, and go home and said I can't ride that, but I thought well I've come this way, I might as well have a sit on him. And as soon as I sat on him, I mean he just, he didn't feel like a little horse, he felt like a big horse and he felt amazing. And because um, I said yes, I'll, I'll try him. And did you have any inkling at that time that he would go on to be as hugely successful as he was or was he sort of a horse to take a punt on and see what happened? Well, he was a horse to take a punt. I mean, he'd, he'd, by, this, by the time I got him, he was doing pre-St. George level dressage. He was a grade B show jumper. 
he'd evented to intermediate level, roughly the equivalent. You know, he'd done a lot of pony club eventing, and and then in horse trials he he had gone to intermediate level. So he, you know, he was ten years old. He'd he'd done a lot, but you know, he was barely fifteen. 15, 2, 15, 3, and I thought, well, I didn't have anything else to ride at home, and I just thought, well, he'll be a nice, fun horse to, to have at home. It wasn't till I'd done a couple of competitions and I thought this could be something special. He did, he did five competitions in New Zealand and won them all, um, including the, the national three-day event. Um, so, and by that stage, you know, I was getting pretty excited about him. And you've touched a couple of times already on one of the very well-known things about your partnership, which is that he was a very small horse and obviously you're a very tall man. Did you have to make any particular changes or in the way you rode him or be aware of, of that sort of difference that, that you weren't maybe on the face of it, a natural partnership? Did you have to make any changes in the way you rode because of that? Not really. I mean, he, he had a great front on him. You know, he he was only fifteen, two or three. I can't remember, but he had no wither. Like, and and apart from that, he was he was quite a big horse. He had an enormous stride on him for for a horse his stride, his size. Um, I guess the <laughs> the only thing I had to do was I had to ride a little bit shorter than I probably normally would because he had a habit of skimming over his fences a bit, and every now and again, um, if I didn't ride short. My feet would catch or hit the bottom of the at the fence, and I'd be sort of shot out of the saddle a bit. Um, <laughs> but and and dressage-wise, I guess I used to ride a little bit shorter than I normally would, just so that you know I could my leg would vaguely be on on his side, not dangling down below. <laughs> I did once sit on a pony at Pony Club where I could literally touch my toes under its tummy and hopefully it wasn't quite that extreme. <laughs> no, it but... wasn't quite. He always had quite a big barrel anyway. He was always quite quite round, so no. Well, his, nick his nickname was Podge, wasn't it? And that was for a reason. Yeah, he was he was nicknamed Podge because like he was always a bit on the podgy side. We had to watch his diet. Um, he could live on, like as they say, on the smell of an oily, oily rag. He was like a pony in that sense, but... Uh, yeah, always hale and hearty. <laughs> and tell us, Mark, about that first Olympic gold medal. You went to Los Angeles in 1984. What was the build-up to that event like? Um, well, I'd, I'd brought him up from New Zealand in the spring, uh, the Northern Hemisphere spring of that year, and um, ended up going with the idea of going to badminton, with the idea of then going on to the Olympics. This is 1984. Um, you know, in those days... You could just enter badminton. Um, you know, there, there wasn't such a thing as qualifications. Um, you know, if you, if you felt you were ready to have a go, you did. Um, and I, I felt that he he was on having won the three-day event in New Zealand, which was probably in back in those days the old three-star level, which is now four-star level. Um, he came to England. We didn't. Um, surround ourselves in glory for the first couple of starts. I think I might have had a run out and uh, I think I might have been tipped off or something at the first couple of OIs. And then I ended up going to Brigstock, which was the sort of traditional lead-up or one of the traditional lead-ups uh, advanced class before badminton. And I thought, well, if he doesn't go any good round here, I can't go to badminton. Anyway, he went really well. So um, we took our chance at badminton and he ended up finishing second there. So 
from then on it was uh, you know let's let's go to to the olympic games and i guess i went to the olympics uh, in los angeles with with a certain amount of confidence knowing that you know he had been second at badminton but also going to an olympic games and and um you know it was my first one not thinking you know oh we're going there you know we're going to win a medal but just hope hoping that um you know we can put up a good performance um as it was um you know he did a really good dressage test um he was fast and clear on the steeplechase and and fast and inside the time cross country and went into the show jumping round which um you know was never his strong point in second place and we just thought well gosh i just hope we can you know jump a clear round and and we had a chance to win a medal uh i think karen stives was in the lead um going into the show jumping american rider um and i remember i remember clearly we were in the warm-up i was having ted edgar help me with the show jumping then and um he was a brilliant man to have on the ground and i remember karen stives was on a great big gray horse and this thing was just looping the loop out in the in the practice arena and charisma was banging fence down after fence down and i'm going oh my god um <laughs> but anyway i had faith in ted and we went into the arena and he jumped a clear round um and then i had to wait while karen styles went and never thinking that um you know the way it was jumping outside it wasn't going to have a fence and i couldn't watch um so i was sitting out the uh, i was out the back smoking a cigarette i hate to say as i used to do in those days um and then finally as there was absolute silence um in the arena because you know she was an american it was home home crowd you could hear a pin drop and i wandered up to the shooter she came into the final combination and she had the last element down um so yeah no it was it was like oh my god i can't believe this yeah, so uh, Karen and, and that that horse that you mentioned, Ben Arthur, they dropped to the silver and, and you took the gold. And then four years later, going to Seoul, that must have been quite a different build-up. Was there quite a weight of expectation by then on, on you and Charisma as the defending champions? Well, yes and no. Like he, he was 12 when he won in LA. He was 16 when he went to um, Seoul. And while... Uh, you know, it's probably not old these days for a horse of 16 to still be competing. Back then, when they were doing full long formats, there weren't too many 16-year-olds that were, were around competing at that level. And by that stage, he had got a little bit blasé, or even more blasé. Um, and I was also doing the pure show jumping at the same time. And so... I probably in the in the event lead up events I probably wasn't um, as focused on him as I should have been and uh, and I had another horse Barlua that was also in contention uh, for the eventing you know four years previously I'd thought well you know 16 he's going to be too old he won't be going to the Olympics so I was sort of producing these other horses uh, the year before he'd gone to Burley uh, in the autumn and he finished second to my other horse Wilton Fair because I had two fences down one was his fault one was my fault so I, that was when I thought yes we have got a chance to go to the Olympics again the next year um, so I skipped I skipped badminton in the spring thinking 
um, that would uh, probably be too much for him. But honestly, he did, he ran in a couple of events, um, one day events, and he was just horrendous. Um, he was very fit, almost running away with me on the cross country. I mean, he really needed. He should have gone to badminton, but anyway, we didn't. And then again, um, when it came closer to the time to go to um, to get ready to go to the Olympics, he. I think I went to, I can't remember what the event was, um, but he was awful in the dressage. He just was full of himself. I think he had about four show jumps down and then went like a lunatic around the cross country. So it was then that I thought, right, I've got to do something. So, uh, and he was, he was an incredibly tough horse. Um, so I really worked him very hard. And then we went to, um, Gatkin for the British Championships, which was to be the final lead-up event. Uh, a lot of British riders didn't run in that, because um, as we know now, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough event, but I just thought he needed it. Um, anyway, he went there with all the work I'd given him. He was very good in the dressage. I think he show jumped clear and was fast and clear cross country and won it. Um, so I thought, right, you know, you're on form, you can go to the Olympic Games. And I got there and, you know, sometimes you just have this incredible feeling of deja vu. And um, I did um, when I got there and he felt amazing in the days leading up to the competition. So much so that, you know, when I gave him a gallop, that I nearly couldn't stop him and I had to run him into some portaloos to try and <laughs> stop. Um, and, you know, I think he probably produced um, one of the best performances of his career. He, he won the dressage there. Uh, he should have won it by a lot more, but there was a very biased Italian judge um, who had uh, an Italian close-up second behind me. Um, he was phenomenal cross-country. Um, he had one of the best, fastest time and one of the best recovery rates of, of all the horses competing there. And he went into the show jumping, able to have um, a couple of fences down. Um, he was that far in front, and we had one down, but still won it quite comfortably. Yeah, he was he was a long way ahead, I think, as you say, by that by that time. And the pictures of him doing his test at that Olympics, we often say that the standard of dressage has risen in the sport. But I think he would have maybe held his own even in today's eventing. Oh, absolutely, he he would have been equally competitive today and and one of the, I think the nicest comments was there was the one of the horse and hound reporters at the time Pegatti Enriquez she was Grand Prix dressage judge and, and actually I think watched the eventing dressage and I think her comment in the horse and hound was something like charisma's test was technically more correct than the than the winner of the of the Grand Prix and the pure dressage which I don't know how she quite came up with that but it was <laughs> it was a very nice comment anyway yeah lo lovely thing to have written about you and when you look back at, at at his whole career do you have any regrets about your time with him obviously you were so successful was there anything that you felt that that you missed out on that just got away I think the saddest thing for him was the fact that he never won a four-star or, or five-star, as they now, in, in, in Britain. Um, you know, he won the two Olympic golds, he won Samur, he won Le Moulin. Um, he was second at, at badminton, he was second at Burley. The one year that I thought he was just, as I was as certain he could have won badminton as anything was the year 
it was cancelled. We were all packed up, ready to go, and they cancelled the event. Um, but you know, even though he didn't win um, a major over here, he was, you know, one of the the most celebrated horses in this country, and and uh, so that that was wonderful. Mm, that was 1987 when when Babington was cancelled through through wet weather, yeah. and and he missed out. Um, yeah. And and just to finish off, Mark, what what did he do for you in your career? Well, he he put me on the map. You know, I had won badminton before with with Southern Comfort, but to come come back uh, four years after that initial win with this horse, um, and to have so much success with him, and and you know, at at the time when I was riding him, he was he was probably more famous than I was, but I sort of tagged along for the ride. And, and uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and I think, you know, everybody says you have one special horse in your career. And, and although I was very fortunate to have a lot of good horses, he will always be the one that um, sort of stands out. There are, after all, there are only three horses in history that have won back-to-back gold medals. Yeah, he of course was the second. The first to do the double was the pre-World War II hero, Marcra. And since Charisma, obviously La Biestatique Sam has joined that exclusive group. Those three horses who have won back-to-back Olympic gold medals. And Mark, just to finish off on a different note, you retired from eventing in 2019 for the second time. And now you've got your feet firmly in the racing world. Just tell us a little about what you're up to these days. Well, yes, I mean, having retired the first time and gone back to New Zealand and, and went to uh, uh, racehorse training. Um, I, I've sort of got talked into it again over here and, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a new cha- chapter, it's a new challenge. Um, I've got some very nice owners, some very good owners. Um, I've got some very nice young horses and, um, you know, it's, it's been going just over a year now and I wouldn't say, you know, I haven't hit the, hit the headlines for the right reasons, but um, it's a work in progress and I'm enjoying it and I'm, you know, it's a very competitive um, up here in the racing world um, and I'm just hoping that, you know, one of these horses I have might be um, a good enough horse to, you know, win some nice races. Come on then, give us a name, give us a tip for our readers to follow and maybe have a little have a little bet on in the in, in your racing stable. <laughs> I would be the worst tipster out. Um, I've I've got a horse, um, he's unraced as yet. He's a two-year-old colt by Le Havre out of a Galileo mare. He's owned by Sir Peter Vella, who is a huge racing man uh, from New Zealand and was um, one of my owners of Venting, who he owned um, Land Vision. NZB Land Vision that won Babington. He, this colt, uh, he, he's just been named Tasman Bay, um, and I think he could be he could be very smart. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on him. And thank you so much for joining us today, Mark, and and telling us about your memories of Charisma, such a special little horse, and uh, it's wonderful to hear all about him. Lovely. Thank you very much, Pippa. I'm joined today by our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Hello. And our news writer, Becky Murray. Hi, Becky. Hello. Eleanor, you were off work last week. What were you up to? Oh, not a huge amount. Just pottering around with my horses, had some lessons, went to a couple of shows and yeah, just really nice to not do much. (laughs) 
Any rosettes? Any eliminations? Any falls off? No, I took. I mean, I took my grey mare last Tuesday, and uh, she jumped a lovely clear. But I had thought after I'd fallen off at the previous show with her getting a bit keen on her jump off turns that I would just go for a slow clear and stayed on board, which is always a winner. Yep, definitely. So I think you know, no rosettes, but no fall offs. It's uh, that's the result we're generally willing to, to we'll roll take with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how are things with you, Becky? Good, thank you. Um, my mares have had the past couple of weeks off, actually, so I'm just forming a plan to try and get them back into some kind of work. Um, they are in desperate need of a clip, however, so that's on my agenda first. Time to get the clippers out. Well, I'm really excited because this week we have the only five star of 2020 at Poe in France. It's a really strong field. At last count, it looks like there are 53 horses lining up to start. And it's a bit of a chance for riders to impress looking to selection for Tokyo next year. And obviously that's something we just haven't seen much this season with international and top level competition being quite limited by COVID-19. Eleanor, now I know you're more of a show jumper, but are you going to follow Poe? Do you have a hot tip for our listeners? I am going to be following it actually as the only five star event of the year. I have to say I haven't got a hot tip because I mean it would be lovely to see Tom and Toledo de Cursa do it again and or to have a British winner but I'm afraid I'm not knowledgeable enough to give any hot tips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Eleanor there referencing Tom McEwen who won Poe last year for Britain with his lovely horse Toledo de Cursa. They're back at Poe this week. What about you Becky? Will you be following? Yes, I will. Can't wait to see some action. Um, but it's a tough one. I think I'm going to have to say I'm backing Richard Coney on Kananaskis. Um, they've had some brilliant results and been the medals at the Young Rider Europeans of the last few years. And I think they had a top 10 finish at Burnham Market last month. So see how they get on. Oh, Becky backing one of our younger British riders there, Richard Coney. I don't think Richard's going to be the winner of Poe, but I definitely think he's a dark horse worth looking out for. I am struggling to see beyond the British riders, I have to say. I think, touch wood, we will have a British winner. But this list, oh, it's so strong. There are so many good combinations here. I'm looking at Alex Bragg and Zagreb, Sarah Bullimore, Rev DeRue, Ros Cantor, Zen Shearer. Laura Collett with her two top horses, London 52 and Mr. Bass, um, Piggy March and Brookfield Innocent. And of course, Oliver Townend with MHS King Jewels. But I think the one who I'm actually going to pick is Nicola Wilson. She's riding the mare Bilana. They were the European individual bronze medalists in 2017 and have maybe flown a little under the radar since then for one reason or another. Nicola had some time off with an injury, nothing to do with Bilana, but, but to do with her rider. But I think they're a pair who are definitely worth looking out for this week and we'll be so excited to follow Poe. It's an event that we'll be reporting all week online in our Horse and Hound plus area so do get on there on our website if you want the daily news from poe and of course it'll be in next week's magazine and i'm sure we'll be catching up on the news of the results on the podcast next week too but moving on now becky you've been looking at a story this week about dope testing in showing what's been happening there well, at the moment in showing, the different organisations follow their own individual policies. So some societies might do to uh, dope testing at present and some don't. Now, there has been discussions over the years about a dope testing policy being brought in that basically all the organisations will follow together, making a more unified approach. So the Showing Council has been leading the work on this and they've approached the British question about adopting their doping policy and rules. Now, one of the key things about this policy is that sanctions for failed dope tests run across disciplines. So if the different organisations are in agreement, the hope is eventually it would be the case that if someone was, say, suspended in showing, 
this would then mean they're also suspended in British dressage, for example. Okay, so this sounds like a positive development if it's going to sort of standardise things across across different societies and different different sports. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so it's at sort of the initial talking point at the moment. You know, meetings are taking place, and the showing council has seventeen member organisations. So you know they've got to then have discussions at their own societies and certainly the showing council isn't a governing body so it will be up to these different societies what they choose to do. The British Show Horse Association did bring in their own policy at the beginning of the month which we reported on. So certainly um, one of the organisations that has spoken about following these potential new proposals is the British Skewbald and Piebald Association who think that it's a, a great thing and they said it'd be really in the interest of competitors and owners. Hmm. So that sounds like a positive reaction and we'll be looking out for, for more developments there. Thank you, Becky. Eleanor, you've got some insight for us this week on the FEI tribunal process, haven't you? What's the case that's led to this? So this is a case we have reported on a couple of times earlier in the year uh, about two international show jumping tours that were stripped of their Olympic and Longines world ranking points because the FEI have admitted that some show schedules were mistakenly approved. Um, so competitions that counted for Olympic and Longines points were added after the definite entry deadlines and then, quote, mistakenly approved by the FEI. And after they were stripped of their points, Sri Lankan rider Matilda Carlson lost her individual place at the Tokyo Olympics. So that's the case we've reported on before. And then she appealed, she went to the tribunal. And as a result of that, some lawyers and riders have raised concerns about the whole tribunal process. And I mean, hopefully this is an issue that won't affect too many of our readers and listeners. Uh, hopefully they won't find themselves in front of the FBI tribunal. But some very interesting points raised about how the process works. Mm, really interesting and serious implications there with a, a Tokyo qualification being lost. And there was also a case around dressage judge suspensions that, that you included in this story too, Eleanor. Yeah, and this was, um, again, an interesting case that we reported on in 2016. Um, and these were Ukrainian judges who were suspended for, quote, nationalistic judging and then lost their appeals. And there were some uh, concerns raised about the FEI disclosing evidence and communication with the Dressage Committee and the lawyers for Matilda Carlson were just concerned about whether the process was as transparent and, and the tribunal as independent as would be ideal. Mm, and what did the FEI say in response to that? Um, yeah, so that they, they said in Miss Carlson's case that the points, Matilda Carlson's points hadn't been validly earned. And so they, they said the decision had to be made to ensure fair and equal conditions for all riders. And um, they also talked about the Ukrainian judges saying that was upheld by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. They said the tribunal is elected in accordance with all its rules um, and that all tribunal decisions are appealable. Okay, so then they have a, a response there. But are there any constructive suggestions from riders or lawyers about what they'd like to see maybe change in the process? Yeah, the uh, top British dressage rider, Richard Davison, uh, had also raised some concerns. He says he'd like to sit down around a table with the FEI and ask whether there is a better way to do things. So more of a sort of mediation route than this adversarial approach where you always have a winner and a loser. And he says a lot of other sport governing bodies are doing that. Mm, that's really interesting. Well, thank you, Eleanor, for bringing us up to date with that. And thank you to Becky too for joining us today. 
Next up, we grabbed a few minutes with vet Helen Van Tool as she was heading off to do a pre-purchase vetting. Helen's practice, VT Vets, is based in Kirtlington outside Bista, and she hunts in that area, but also with packs in Dorset, where she's a former joint master of the South Dorset. Over to you, Helen. The common call on a Sunday morning or any post-hunting day would be to assess a horse that has come up with a skin condition. These are most often seen in hunters along the, the belly and down the front of the hind legs. I suspect the most common cause is effluent being spread on paddocks or any flood water, which tends to be particularly aggressive to the horse's skin. Most hunting clients are very diligent in washing off their horses after hunting. There's a wide range of available products used commonly, um, especially uh, hibiscrub diluted solution, iodine diluted solution, and commercially available products such as Malaseb. We like to think that by washing the horses very carefully with these products, we're going to eliminate the chance of bacteria staying on the skin overnight and causing a large-scale allergic skin reaction the following morning. There's always a lot of debate, uh, particularly amongst my friends, about what is better, whether to wash off with hot or cold water. I personally do use hot water, but I feel that I have to be very, very careful whilst doing so to get every little bit of dirt out because otherwise I think I would have a skin condition the following morning. I think that cold water allows you to be a little bit less aggressive with the cleaning and scrubbing. I think you're less likely to, but generally I find the horses do prefer hot water and will stand a lot better for you to wash off with the hot water. So when you find your horse with his belly on fire the next morning with large skin bumps all under his abdomen, on the inside of his hind legs, down his back legs and along the front, the question is what to do. Now I don't think I'm the only vet in the country who wouldn't like to be woken up to see an emergency skin rash. I think it's definitely something that could be managed. Uh, there, there are a number of products available commercially, aloe vera products that can be used. But if you are very concerned, antibiotics can be used if the skin is showing signs of having an infection, i.e. there are pustules on the skin. If it is a general bumpiness, I think you can be less aggressive with antibiotics and maybe just use anti-inflammatories to calm the skin down whilst making a note to do a more thorough wash-off after the next day's hunting. Thank you, Helen. Next week, we'll have vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine talking about winter checkups for older horses, which I know is a subject close to many of our listeners' hearts. Our guest will be the US Olympic event rider Lauren Nicholson, better known to most as Lauren Kiefer, her name changing there on her marriage last autumn. And of course, we'll be reviewing Poe and all the week's news. Don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast. The numbers are growing all the time with our most popular episode, the one with Laura Collett, now having over 1,500 downloads. So make sure you're sharing so that your friends can join the podcast family. Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.